Sorry, I was getting my... I went to the liquor store really quick. L'chaim. <laughs> L'chaim. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Ugh. I've had kind of a long week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, the... Smut Bank, where I work, is just sort of um, over uh, overburdened by lonely American simps over Thanksgiving. And then yesterday, I went to my studio to build a new work table, and the instructions were just, like, very simple but very poorly articulated, and I felt so I just felt so like overwhelmed by the task of like building a piece of furniture and I so badly wanted a man to tell me how to do it and I was thinking about Rebecca Solnit and men explain things to me and how much I hate that book and how often I actually really desire men to explain things to me and how really my biggest fetish is men telling me what to do well I mean First of all, I don't know how to build a table, nor do I know how to fix the hood latch on my Honda Civic. Um, I have a gender neutral attitude towards people explaining things to me that I do not already understand. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's frustrating. It's good to have instruction. I wish I had learned a little more about building things when I had the chance for my dad you know yeah. it's just like one of those things yeah I actually have built tables before and I'm pretty handy but um I didn't think to look at the instructions before I left my house and I left my drill at home and so I had to build this just with um Rob my studio mate's screwdriver Screw and he's a he's a painter so using my painter studio mate's tools to build my work table just felt like punishment for something. No, that's absurd. You, you need the right tools for the job no matter what you're doing. I kind of assumed it'd be like Ikea where they just send you those like made up like proprietary Allen wrenches for their like very specifically sized hardware. But no, I sort of left my own devices. They didn't have perforated holes on the tabletop. I had to drill them with a screwdriver. And How do you drill something with a screwdriver that doesn't even- Well, it's like, they're like self-taping so or self-tapping so they kind of just like it was soft wood it was like cheap wood but sure. it's really annoying and Still, though, that's pretty intense yeah um anyways speaking of men explaining things uh i hear you have a mink update for us <laughs> yeah i'm uh, i am now going to take my assumed role and uh we have i mean last time we talked we talked a little bit about minks we talked about the calling of minks in Denmark, right? And so at the time, you know, there's a coronavirus strain that was discovered in minks. It was passed from humans to minks. There's concerns over like a sort of a, a reservoir of uh, cross infections happening, whatever. So they execute hundreds of minks. I, I could read this off really quick. This is from- Hundreds or millions? Millions, no, upwards of 10 to 15 million at this point. Um, they wow. have, quote unquote, contained <laughs> the Danish mink population. And, and so now, I'm just going to read this off really quick. 
This is from CNN. Denmark plans to dig up thousands of dead mink culled to prevent, prevent the spread of coronavirus after the animals started to rise out of their mass graves. Hundreds of dead mink emerged from their burial sites, according to Danish state broadcaster TV2. It is believed the gas used to kill them caused the carcasses to swell and resurface, prompting Danish media to dub them, quote, zombie mink. Some 17 million mink were gassed and buried in trenches in a military zone in Western Denmark. Their bodies were buried under two meters of soil, but hundreds started to rise to the surface. I, I think uh, this is one of those times in life where we gotta say, we told you so? I mean, I think it's really a testament to your, um, your whack-a-mole theory um, <laughs> from last episode. Literally emerging from the ground as a whack-a-mole. Yeah. I didn't mean to be, it's a little on the nose, really. I don't know. I kind of have a theory that they're not emerging from the ground. They're being purposely exhumed for uh, Melania to uh, decorate the White House with for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's they're they're gonna go on her many Christmas trees. Yeah, her like North American maximalist Christmas decor. Yeah. Oh my God. She. I. Such a such a mall aesthetic that's going on in there um, yeah it's like taylor swift's apartment <laughs> yeah or like oh man i don't even know it's got a very like starbucks gift card you know sort of aesthetic to it I can yeah my favorite was a 2018 when she had those red flocked christmas trees even the oh. term red flocked christmas tree sounds like something out of like a like a steinbeck what, um, what is red flocking Flocking is a um, pulverized material that is spray. It's like a um, it's sprayed oh, onto an adhesive. I just looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, you know those those fake fake snow Christmas trees that you see. Yeah. Do people have those in the desert? I mean, or is that only a like a well, other other variety of suburban? Well, they're suburban enough to where they have everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have lawns in the deserts. <laughs> they sure fucking do. They, you know, I'm sure they're chopping down Joshua trees and putting all sorts of ornaments on those. Yeah, Melania is, well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah, we're gonna we'll, get to, we'll get to Melania. Our, we have, we have all kinds of things about, about Melania. Yeah, we've got a lot to get to. I just want to touch on a couple more of these mink things really quick. Please. I know, I don't want to harp on it, but I got, I, I'm like, I went down the mink rabbit hole, man, and I am now a preeminent mink expert. I mean, there are other concerns in Denmark uh, to do with the proximity of these burial sites on this like military land to like um, water sources. So now it's creating this sort of like ever evolving uh, environmental, potential environmental problem. Not to mention, of course, that the entire industry is you know, now dead in that country, which isn't a good, a bad, you know, like fuck fur farming, right? But like what ends up happening is that then prices skyrocket and it goes to less regulated places like Greece and Poland who have less oversight, not necessarily because they don't want it, but because less oversight is a part of like their austerity measures imposed by like the IMF and the World Bank and all of these sort of like predatory debt lending institutions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, first, just leave the jacking of minks alone. A friend of mine pointed out something really astute about, you know, sort of like the, the, the cultural 
currency of fur in European portraiture, specifically ermines. And I went down this weird rabbit hole, if you'll allow me a tangent. Um, you have to start calling it the mink hole. The mink hole, yeah. <laughs> I'm all the way down there, baby. I'm fucking losing it, man. Like in, in, in European painting, minks were a symbol of like purity, moderation, but also of pregnancy. And there's a famous painting called Lady with an Ermine by Leonardo. And it was of this woman, Cecilia Gallerani, um, who is sort of like an emergent bourgeois, you know, non-noble woman who is the mistress to the Duke of Milan. Who, In what year? Uh, oh God, this would be like the 14 somethings. 1408, I think is when he moved to be the court painter of Milan. And it was his first patronage. And this is like at the emergence of patronage in, in general. And she also, um, Cecilia Gallerani was the emergence of like salons and she would have all these like intellectuals come and like preside over the talks and yada 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 and Leonardo was invited and that was kind of like a lot of that was happening and part of him like meeting the Medici she was like you know like he was like a new girl in New York and like <laughs> she was like the hot roommate who like knew a bunch of people and was like cool and fucking whatever uh, but the, in, in the, the influencer she, roommate what's that yeah the, the influencer, influencer roommate <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And anyway, in, in the portrait, she's holding an ermine. She was the mistress to the Duke of Milan. His name was, uh, what was it? Ludovico Soforza Il Moro. And um, at the time, she was pregnant with his illegitimate child. And so Leonardo, who was like kind of the homie, was in the know. So the mink is simultaneously like, uh, you know, protects pregnant women in classical li European literature, but is also the symbol of like purity and Leonardo wrote on it extensively. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of that is related to something I discovered called sumptuary laws, which are laws mm -hmm. that prohibit what types of things certain people can wear. And like in Edward III's reign in like the 12th century, they implemented laws like only like ladies and knights and above could wear fur. And um, this extended into Italy and other places. Interestingly, France did not have such a ban because. Uh, fur trading, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. They put a ban on lace, on gold lace, because that was like a domestic product that they wanted to price fix. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, sumptuary laws are why the Virgin Mary always wears blue in paintings. Is that correct? That's what I was taught in my college art history classes. Interesting. By Nicole Archer. I know there's something about like purple as well, right? Yeah, I mean, well, also the distinctions between purple and blue are like culturally relative, and also they transitioned over the course of like the trajectory of um, Western aesthetics. But also, blue as pigment wasn't able to be synthetically produced until the beginning of the 18th century, so it was also like a means of showing piety you know, to like render the Virgin Mary in blue. I'm not sure which came, I'm, I'm not sure which aspect influenced what, like I'm not sure if it was the, I, I imagine it was like the rarity of blue, you know, dictating the class positioning of um, like fabric in that color to begin with. Sure. Um, Supply and demand, blue is the rarest color. <laughs> blue is the gayest color. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that was purple. See, I'm all. <laughs> that is super fascinating. It, it makes me think a lot about, you know, the Vanita still lifes and 
which is, you know, later Renaissance. So it's like Northern Renaissance. This really popular, kind of like proto-pop art. Like they were really popular amongst people outside of the land of gentry and in an era where people were beginning to like reproduce prints through etchings and other forms of plates. And they were just, uh, they're pretty pervasive in like a popular setting. And, you know, people making these Vanita still lives, which were like pretty much just still lives that you see, like not Thomas Kincaid because he makes landscape paintings, but like living room art, Embarcadero, art fair, tent kind of still yeah, lives. Yeah, Antiques Roadshow, you got a lemon, you got a pie. Yeah. You got a um, yeah. But they were, compensated for when people were like you know accusing them of being this sort of like frivolous and you know superfluous subject matter that like all of the objects in the paintings had these like sort of divine like references and symbologies but there is a lot of doubt among scholars that like there was any integrity to those claims and it was really just an excuse for people to like make the art they wanted to make um and it's interesting because they like have these very basic symbols of death and you know divinity and consciousness like globes and skulls and you know fruit wow. fresh off the vine yeah exactly things that like you know imply the sense of ephemerality um and that's been co-opted by like a lot of goth aesthetics like a lot of like uh, like post-punk bands, I think contemporary post-punk bands kind of like borrow from that aesthetic um, in their uh, like merchandise and um, like album artwork. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm like looking at a few right now, you know, from that era from sort of like Northern Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the bastardization of like history though. That's just how, that's how it happens. It's like, you know, the designation of like the Goths was just like a retroactive um, application of the term by like scholars in the 19th century who didn't think that the aesthetics of the Middle Age were a testament to the uh, potential of human aptitude. Certainly. It's interesting as I look at this sort of like memento mori, uh, tr these tropes going on. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of stuff with t tattoos or something like that. You could be like, yeah, like, sure, it's art or this or that, but it's like, it's fucking it's like a cool skull you know <laughs> yeah totally and and yeah and it's, you know definitely you know you mentioned Kincaid there's a sort of like crossover appeal to an emergent bourgeoisie right because it isn't necessarily like a woman in an ermine coat that she's not allowed to wear it's um expensive like tableware you know oyster shells like decadent foods the sort of things that money can buy yeah, it's like, it, it, it's not like, they're not symbols of, of the monarchy. They're almost symbols of like an emergent middle class, you know, they're thing, it's an aesthetic that like um, carried into the industrial revolution. So this is an era where people are actually accumulating wealth and, you know, have the ability to like buy outside their previous means. Absolutely. And, and there is, you know, related to Minx, there's quite a bit of like, you know, game like wild game felled in some of these that i'm seeing it's certainly things that money can buy you know it's relatively secular yeah for a lot of the art of the period yeah i mean it really does like align itself with pop art for that reason because pop art was also the sort of you know operating within the materials of consumerism you know sure. the, the aesthetic not just the aesthetics but you know you think about someone like rauschenberg who i really see as 
as a pop artist in a lot of ways, even though he's often like, you know, considered, I mean, he's one of those people who is similar to Noguchi, who, you know, we wanted to talk about later, who definitely rode the line between, you know, between like schools and eras that are adapted by, uh, or, you know, adopted by scholarship. Um, I love the Rauschenberg. Yeah, definitely. His uh, retrospective at MoMA was, or SF MoMA was uh, yeah. pretty remarkable. One of the coolest um, things I ever saw. And and yeah, I mean, really is like not like a terrine for serving soup, the soup pan of the, <laughs> of the 17th century. I mean, it's almost yeah. identical in a way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, thinking about, you know, Warhol, yeah, like great, the, the he's like the, like the Pollock of pop art. Like he's just the easy target. Um, you know, he wasn't just utilizing like the objects and like the, the imagery, you know, in a like referential sense. He was also operating with like the method methodologies of mass production through like screen printing and, you know, just like the sheer scale of his, uh, his oeuvre, as we like to say, you know, in the, in the in the industry. <laughs> yeah, and as like a filmmaker and as a sort of like impresario. Yeah. I, I, you know, the, the, a lot of the time I feel like the, the the people that try and dismiss Warhol are the same people that try and dismiss like Freud or Marx. It's like, you're not really engaging with it as it exists. It was, it was really yeah, maybe too. those are the same <laughs> people that want to like harp on Trump for being a fascist, which I think like gives him way too much credit. <laughs> Yeah, he's not sophisticated enough politically to have like an authority, like that level of like organizational structure. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a reality star. He's not he's not a fascist. He's just a performance he, artist. Which is why we talk about aesthetics because like really, if you want to talk about fascism, like turn on the television or whatever. I mean, a lot of that, you know, gold plated nonsense. Is, you know. Mussolini. I think like the liberalism of like 2018 was far more fascist than Trump has ever been. Oh, I mean, you know, we're, we are so mired in that world. We're like uh, fish swimming in water trying to uh, get a glass of it sometimes. It can be very difficult to, yeah. I, I, I was Even Foster Wallace like rolling in his grave. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. In anticipation of talking about Melania, our beloved Melania, I saw, I, I was reading this thing about like art in the White House. And um, one of them was about, you know, Trump <laughs> requested, he asked the Guggenheim to send him a Van Gogh. He wanted like one of the, I think it was a haystack. And they, um, they declined. They said that they were wanted to send him, oh, what was the name of the fucking artist? What is it? Hold on, I have it right here. Um, it's called America by Maurizio Catalan, which is a gold toilet. Mm. which just, uh, it's just like that stupid orange man, bad potty humor that makes me understand hating somebody enough to vote against them in such a way. Yeah, well, they definitely like responded by playing, you know, his, his own game back at him. Um, you know, Maurizio Catalan was also the artist that duct taped a banana at the wall no. of Basel. Uh, really? Yeah. Wait a minute. Okay, so we're going to get to a lot today, but like I was thinking today that like this year, like we have the monolith and last year it was the banana. <laughs> and you know, there's always that one. They're both monoliths and in a sense, you know. <laughs> oh my I God. I mean, to be honest, I think the banana is a little bit more of a monolith because, um, you know, as we'll get into it, the Utah monolith is hollow. We, yes. we just need to, we need to, 
talk about this monolith. We um, will. We will. Of, we'll talk about Melania. We will talk about all of it. We will talk about Melania. Um, we'll talk speaking, about speaking of art in the White House, um, it was announced last week that um, in uh, typical fashion, the First Lady acquired a piece of art for the grounds of the White House. And it was the seminal sculpture floor frame by Noguchi. Um, famed Japanese-American artist. The White House's formal statement on the piece is, while powerful in its own right, floor frame is humble in scale and complements the authority of the Oval Office. Um, there's also a lot of rhetoric around floor frame being made by a Japanese-American artist as being symbolic of the diversity of the country, which is uh, not, not true. Noguchi is half Japanese. I mean, this doesn't come as a surprise because naturally given the events of 2020, I'm sure they were under pressure to choose an artist that isn't white, which is not difficult to do. I think African-American artists in America right now are probably making the most interesting work out of any demographic of people. But I think it's a, quite a conceptual feat from a curatorial perspective. Um, floor frame is a, fittingly, a floor sculpture that will sit in the Rose Garden at the White House that appears like you know, the edges of a picture frame sort of falling back into the earth as if it was, you know, um, part of like an adobe structure or something. What's interesting is if you Google the word floor frame, the first thing that comes up is the foundation of a, of a home, um, Framing. you know, which yeah, is like the, absolutely. yeah, the technical that's term. That's family's business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Cartwright clan. Yeah. Interestingly, the the frame component of the piece struck out to me more because when my family moved to the US in 1921 um, from uh, Chernovitz, Ukraine, um, which at the time was uh, Bukovina and it was Austria-Hungary, but it's now Chernovitz, Ukraine. Um, my great-grandfather, Irving moved with his brother to Brooklyn to work in their uncle's picture frame factory. And um, I have, so like the foundation of my family's ascension into whiteness in America um, is like rooted in the picture frame, is like rooted in um, like the acquisition of like uneducated but skilled labor. And so thinking Which about- tangential to the arts too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when We're I was in art school, when I was in art school, I mean, I studied photography and I thought a lot about the implications of the frame as this gesture of uh, authority, as a gesture of document. It's really, you know, the distinguishing characteristic that makes something an art object, an art object once it leaves the studio. It's also a business that still exists, but there's a lot more, you know, the, the industry of framing has been sort of like, exploded into a industry of photo novelty objects you know there's a lot there's a lot more ways to make a photograph an object than just by putting it into a frame and hanging it on a wall now there's i mean for the last 20 years there's blankets and 
pillows and coffee mugs and mouse pads and tote bags. And a lot of that, that labor is performed overseas, you know, through companies like Zazzle or Shutterfly. Um, sure, there's a, there's a service called Framebridge that I've been advertised on while listening to podcasts that you like, you know, it's basically cut rate prices to have something framed, which always means overseas production, <laughs> you know, terrible working conditions. Like there's a reason why things cost money. Like framing is a extremely skilled carpentry skill like yeah. it's and sometimes you see a frame on a painting especially an older one like an old master and you're just like holy shit man like it's an incredible thing yeah um eva has to eat your heart out yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah eva has to hang up is a is one that definitely comes to mind when i look at um the Noguchi piece floor frame but yeah um, i had the same thought it's, yeah which i love i actually it's funny because i came in with like a sort of critical stance on Noguchi, and the more i like looked at that i was like okay yeah but like, I mean, what, what's interesting, like the authority the i like how she mentions the authority of the of the oval office it's like what does a frame do it grants authority to an image right yeah it's, and the sculpture is is the frame literally like sinking into the earth it's like the dissolution of authority yeah the the unintentional symbol of that whole <laughs> we have this organizational structure it has since been subsumed by the thing from which it came but you know in theory it still is there yeah and i mean to go back to like the metaphor of, of the floor frame of the foundation of a home the thing upon which a house the white house is built and emphasizing just the most fundamental component of it in an era of such explicit transition i mean it's a moment of transition in american politics quite like quite unlike any other i mean we're emerging from four years of extreme isolationism in terms of foreign policy the most visible and palpable moment of racial and social unrest that we've seen probably since the 1960s and you know i was trying to look into the uh the staff behind the white house historical association which is the sort of like addendum of the of Melania's administration that sort of handles the objects and artifacts inside the White House and you know curates them and catalogs them. I don't know like if there's a curator or if they're just more like collection managers. So this makes me think that this is Melania's curatorial gesture, which really exceeds my expectations given her um attitude towards Christmas, which is, you know, another, you know, curatorial responsibility as a resident within the White House. Oh my God. Yeah. She's, uh, um, what's know, also really interesting. She's, she's got a memoir sorry. coming out soon. So Melania, really? Did she write it herself? I, saw some, I heard some rumblings, um, you know, trying to secure a legacy. Also, uh, you know, all this stuff about Trump not conceding power. I also just read that they're, uh, having a lot of their favorite furniture. Uh, the, the curtains are coming off of them at Mar-a-Lago. They're looking at schools in Florida for Barron, you know. Oh, they're not going to go back to New York. They're, 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 transition, they're doing their own transition into a public media life, like which people like golf, whatever. That makes sense. Um, I mean, I think that Melania is interesting because her experience as an immigrant 
and I hate how, as I was researching this, I saw these like people like making fun of her misnomers and stuff like that. Like that's so fucking cynical. Like she's from the Yugoslavia, dude. Like give her some fucking credit. I don't know, whatever. But um, she, her immigrant experience has been not the same as a Syrian refugee or somebody from Mexico comes over and like has to go through all these, you know, she kind of came here illegally, you know, visa, what have you, which is similar to Noguchi in a way, because his yeah. mother was a very well-known writer who was the daughter of a big newspaper owner in New York. And during the period of Japanese internment in World War II, he volunteered to go to an internment camp to establish mm -hmm. like a, an arts program. But after a couple weeks, he said, you know, I don't think this is really for me. And he requested it <laughs> and he tried to get out and they were like, well, you're Japanese. We think you're a spy, but he was only there like a month or so. And uh, not, not to say that he didn't try, you know, that's, that's, yeah, he that's eventually, not my claim, but like, I think that he has a slightly more privileged position. Not to say that he didn't experience racism, but like, I mean, to begin, like the privilege is, goes without saying he, he voluntarily, uh, entered an internment camp and, and as a, yeah as a, as a political gesture what is really outstanding to me about Noguchi's time in internment in the uh, in, in Potsdam uh, he spent his time awaiting his departure his requested departure um, designing in like architectural alternative to the camp, which included like a library and a school and a community center um, because he had a background in architecture and design. And last year, the White House Historical Association who also purchased floor frame, purchased the drawings he made for that alternative internment camp. And I was in, again, different situation than someone who was just like ripped from their home and community as opposed to like voluntarily, you know, participating in internment. But it sort of felt like if the White House decided to curate an exhibition of drawings made by children in detention centers at the border. Yeah, 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 like pictures of them looking at their mom with like chain link in front of it. I mean, it would be really nice if they could, you know, utilize those drawings for the existing <laughs> camps of this country, you know, do like a Sherry Gouban sort of uh, humane FEMA sort of thing. Yeah, it would have been great had like the federal government just not interned, you know, their own citizens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. You know, that actually brings me to something that I wanted to mention, which is like the way that this is being spun is like, we're incorporating this person of color into our canon. It was very similar to the DHS appointee under Biden, Alejandro Mayorkas, who is like, you know, a prosecutor. He was a DHS secretary that like modeled the like detention of whole families model under the Obama administration and is just like a craven cop and then people are like well because he's a Cuban Jew and it's like no his parents were plantation owners that like fled the revolution. <laughs> I don't know it makes me think of like all, all, all of the odd like applications of cultural justification and combinations like 
Dolly Parton funding the vaccine and like Wayne Gretzky making ice wine. <laughs> Love Dolly. Love Makes Dolly. me trust the vaccine, you know, knowing that Dolly was behind it. It's the only thing that'll make me take it. That and wanting to leave the country as soon as possible. But yeah, you know, Dolly, Dolly, that's a whole nother subject. I mean, well, there's a lot going on like culturally with these sort of like, you know, what do you, what do you call it? Um, virtue signaling, right? Is It's kind of like a murky term, but like when you say like, we have this Cuban Jewish guy who's going to scale things back to the terrible conditions they were at under the Obama administration in terms of immigration or what have you, you know, who built the cages as Trump said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, virtue signaling is a great term and I'm I'm often taken aback by you know, far left liberals when they try to justify anyone's character by their uh, gender or race. Well, that's why that's why Kamala Harris as a VP pick was such an incredible chess move on behalf of the DNC, yeah. right? I mean, it's like after months and months of like fuck the cops for very 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 good reason, they're like, ha what if we do this? And it seriously like short circuited people's brains. And it, it, but it's it's like you know you don't know how to like react in these ways. It can be very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting when I think back to Kamala's presidential campaign and how that virtual signaling really was present on such a nuanced and microscopic level. The soundtracks to her, like to the the soundtracks that preceded the entrance of her campaign speeches, was it being like public enemy and shit like that. Exactly. Yeah. Like power. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that she is consistently referred to, even in the Bay Area, as being from Oakland. No, she was born at a hospital in Oakland and she was raised by academic elites in Berkeley. There's a very, very big difference between Berkeley and Oakland as far as- There's a huge Oakland. distinction. Um, I say as a non-East Bay resident who knows everything you know. about everything else. You know, we talked about this last time, but just continue to keep it all in your mind. Like, there's this big fire sale of paintings happening from you know sort of public art institutions museums and trusts and things like that to private owners which is basically the privatization of previously public held pieces of art under the auspices of like okay we're gonna like we're gonna diversify our collection our, yeah we're gonna we're gonna diversify our collection while simultaneously like making up for some of the losses of 2020 and it's really craven because i mean you know, people can be like, man, fucking Jackson Pollock was a dick and then sell them all. And now I don't get to look at them because they're actually like quite interesting, no matter what you think about them. They're yeah. Really I mean, I think learning the canon is, it's like, you have to know the rules before you can break them. And I think that learning, you know, the way that Western history has been constructed into a certain trajectory is as important as learning how that trajectory was misappropriated. Yeah, they're one and the same. You can't you can't understand without one without the other. Yeah, I mean that, that is, is the that is the bedrock of criticism. And it has to be. I mean, you can't read like I don't know, Amé Césaire's The Un Tempest or whatever without having read The Tempest. Like it just won't make any sense as a polemic, as as like an upending, as a post-colonial, post-modern sort of like 
you know, and I was looking, you know, at the White House, they have a website where they talk about, you know, they have like a diversity in art program and they were like, and Hillary Clinton got an Alma Thomas, who I love, I think Alma Thomas is fantastic, and a Giorgio O'Keefe. And I was like, Giorgio O'Keefe? Okay, now we're just including like women. Okay, sure, but like, it's like, it a reading Michelle. Wolf. It's like, what's that? I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. It was Michelle that got the Alma Thomas. Oh, it was. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you. They also, I read uh, the, the Obamas. And Jacob had, Lawrence. The, the Obamas had loners of Jasper Johns's and Rothko's. I would love, I would love a loner Rothko. You know? I mean, if we I would, I would take touch one. on the American West, I have a whole theory about Rothko, Colorfield, and, you know, being in- I love drunk Jews. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's why we hang out. That's what, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Drunk Jews that tell me what to do. My biggest fetish. Yeah. Um, I had a great time at Thanksgiving, too. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about- I was actually- wondering who um who the clintons acquired uh into the white house collection and um gray my my partner had the genius theory that uh it, um that their <laughs> that their acquisition had been a uh, bastion otter what i don't know it hold on what is it oh wow i don't know if we can have this pod if we can't make bastion otter jokes bastion otter is a um a uh, Dutch conceptual artist who attempted to sail across the Atlantic in a 13-foot boat and disappeared and never returned. Whoa. Did they um, buy the boat? Are we still talking about immigration? <laughs> but uh, what if all this time he was just in the White House basement? Just like Wow, Elian Gonzalez 2.0. I, I looked up, I'm trying to look this up, and I'm just finding pictures of otters, and I'm very disappointed. It's A-D-E-R. What? A-D-E-R. I don't know if I want to change the page. Okay. <laughs> you know, Gavin oh, Newsom's... boss John Ader. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The, the, the whole, like, shtick of this podcast is that Ralph knows and I don't. Um, <laughs> um, really funny, literally just though. Pictures of him holding his face and crying. And I oh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's from a series called I'm Too Sad to Tell You. Oh, my God, you too? <laughs> is your Spotify wrapped? <laughs> Oh my god. Um, what was funny though is I thought that joke was so funny um, about Boston Otter being in like the Clinton basement. Um, I put it in my notes, but my computer autocorrected it to Boston Nader. <laughs> Ralph's estranged son. <laughs> so I was like, wait, what if Boston Otter and Nader were like one and the same? And all this time, Nader has just been a conceptual artist trying to infiltrate the White House. I mean, that's what we say about Vermin Supreme, right? Vermin Supreme is like a performance artist of some sort. <laughs> Didn't Eileen Miles run for president? Eileen Miles? Or attempt to? I don't know. I love America and America loves me. <laughs> that's all I know. That's your only, it's the only, uh, conceptual art piece you're aware of it's yeah I, I i looked up a list it was the first one i'm done i like coyotes um as a desert dweller wait who was that again it wasn't Vito conchi it was um joseph boys 
Joseph Boys, thank you. No, I you always the guy who jerked off under the under the stage, right? Um, yeah, I uh, <laughs> um, once uh, every I was, time I do it, I, I get arrested, but all of a sudden he's an artist. <laughs> once <laughs> I was meeting uh, Alex Goodwin, a uh, friend of the pod, um, in Hayes Valley for a drink because I had uh, tickets to the SF Conservatory of Music from this like experimental conductor that I'd gone to Tinder date with, and. Sick. I, yeah, I was, uh, I was waiting in the corner of Hayes for Alex, and there was this man, uh, a homeless man, who I know from the neighborhood, he actually used to be one of my old roommate's neighbors, but their building got purchased, and, um, he'd always been kind of unstable, but I think he had a rent-controlled unit, and so he had, like, a good situation going on. And then when the building was sold, he, like, wasn't able to secure housing again. It's really, really unfortunate. Um, and so he lives in, still lives in Hayes Valley, and he's a painter. And um, he sort of sets up his studio in various locations around the neighborhood. Um, but he'll go into these, uh, he'll, like, spiral into these moments where he'll just keep on stating, like, I need, like, you're all gonna go to Albuquerque and die and once he was uh in one of these moments carrying a bunch of blankets and holding a milk crate full of just unincorporated miscellaneous objects by a shoestring pulling it behind him crossing the street and as Alex approached me he's like sorry I brought Joseph boys with me <laughs> <laughs> that's really tight I wish Oh man, you know, my roommate last night bought a painting from a man, a homeless man in San Francisco, a guy named Jazz, who he met under the Bay Bridge. I, like, I guess, you know, sort of by that. How entry. was he under the Bay Bridge? Was he on a boat? Was he, no, was he like, with Bossy you know, like, on Honor? On, God, I like, can't tell you the streets. I know that I, but he's a student named Jazz, and it's like this circular painting with these like very beautiful very simple like lines that are like done in acrylics, but they have like a nice like sort of like spontaneous drip to them. I was actually like really fucking enamored with it. I thought it was wonderful. So there's a dude named Jazz. He's somewhere in the Soma Embarcadero zone and um, you know, he's selling some paintings. Yeah. He had his whole like display set up. All, like, it was pretty cool. Good on Joel. I wish again. there were like better resources <laughs> for unhoused artists in San Francisco because there's there better resources for unhoused people. <laughs> yeah, that first, that first. Did Did you know Ronnie? Ronnie Goodman? No. Ronnie was a really incredible painter who um, lived in the Mission for a number of years. Gray knew him from working at Friends of the Library because he'd come in and look at art books, and he he died very suddenly over the summer, um, but he's oh. actually um, having an exhibition at PS1 in, I think it was supposed to be this year. Everything is infinitely postponed. I mean, museums sure. have to close in you San Francisco and throughout California again day. this year, or this, uh, this week, so I imagine New York is in the same position, so I'm not sure when it's going to. Um, Did he do like block prints? Um, yeah, he was a, he did Lino, I think. Lino cuts, yeah, I'm looking at one right cuts, now that yeah. I just looked at. It's beautiful. It has, like, trumpeters, and it says homeless, like, surrounded with um, barbed wire in a form that kind of makes a caduceus that is also sort of, like, crucifixion-y. And it has, like, um, you know, it's it's like a very, like, um, 
it's political art, but it has a, a formal, formally interesting element to it that I really like. It has yeah. these borders made out of these different symbols that are like rats and eyes. How do you how do you feel about the term political art? Well, in general, whenever something is, I don't like it. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't like, and I mentioned this last time, like I don't like things that are shoved down your throat. But I think that, like, I don't know, something like, I mean, where again where do you draw the line like barbara kruger or like goya like there's great pieces of political art all yeah. art, the, you know are all art is personal and all the personal is political yeah i mean even thinking back to like the Vanita still lives like the fact that wait a minute i know this guy i met this guy i have a i have a print that he that i bought off of him right here Oh my god, wait, let me oh, find your did. Zoom window. Yeah, 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 I met him, because I just, I'm looking at it online, and then I got one of the lino cuts, um, a, a, a print of it, not a lino cut print. Sorry, Ronnie Goodman. Yeah, I remember meeting him in the Tenderloin, holy shit. Yeah, he was around Tenderloin Civic Center a lot, too. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's no, Miles that's Davis. amazing. It's a picture of Miles Davis in front of, like, this sort of, like, industrial setting. These trees, it's, it's really impressive, actually. I do lino cuts, and very subtle. Wow. Lino cuts are a very political, you know, sort of like they have a little really political history too, right? Yeah, yeah, printmaking in general. I mean, it's interesting even like think what I was going to say was like thinking about like the like something like the Vanita still lives are interesting because they're like inadvertently political given that they that their alleged conceit justified their importance by claiming that they were affiliated with the church when really they were just like aesthetic gestures. And so thinking about the secularization of society being like kind of contained within this object of people like of like the enlightenment and people's like sort of personal and mass education being, you know, present in their alleged apolitical nature. I I agree with you that I think whenever something claims to be political, it is to resolve to actually be politically compelling. How could how could it have like a, a politic if it is contained within a pre-existing idea, if it's if it's prescribed? Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about ermine pelts and in portraiture, like that's a political gesture. All these things are politically there, it's always there. So when you make it salient in such an obvious way, it's just annoying. It's just decorative or annoying or like cloying or the sort of thing that somebody could run through on a PowerPoint and like show you 20 of and give you like a a synopsis of how you're supposed to feel about it. I'm looking at this picture of Miles Davis right now in front of a, you know, like kind of like playing a trumpet above a factory with all these people at the bottom just sort of sitting there. It is deeply political. It's like, it's almost like a socialist realism sort of thing, but it doesn't have any of that. It's like not didactic. It's it's really engaging. Yeah, I mean, this kind of like leads us to the Utah monolith. Oh, finally. Oh my God, you know we were gonna get there. I have to take a piss. Can we do that really quick? I really have to pee too, hold on. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. I'll be right back. Okay.
Male privilege number 398. Love that. I pee quickly. Men explain things to me. Olnit wrote an interesting thing about the Bay Area art scene in like the 50s that I actually quite like. It's the only thing I've ever read. Um, which one? It's just like a short essay. I think she wrote a book about it, but it was just like maybe a chapter out of it that I'd read. It was talking about like uh you know, like Wally Hed Hedrick, is that his name? And people like that, you know, Jay DeFeo. Uh, sort of like the Kenneth Rexroth, like, you know, you mentioned Rauschenberg earlier as this sort of like missing link between like pop and like, I don't know if it's like abstract expressionism or conceptualism, but like uh, I'd say like, I'd say, I'd say a link between uh, conceptualism, pop art and minimalism. Sure. And like, I mean, but, and like funk art too, like yes. thinking about like, you know, Bruce Connor. Are you yeah. smoking a joint right now? Well, I was gonna. Well, we're gonna talk about the monoliths, so I figured I'd tell Aliens, you. Aliens, yeah. Dude, I want to believe, man. Like, I gotta fuck it. Um, but anyway, I was gonna say Kenneth Rexroth was a missing link, also. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, uh, you know, sort of like earlier American style of like hard boiled fiction and sort of like a modernist writing and the beats. Yeah. Sort of like between Steinbeck and Ginsburg was Rex Roth. And J and uh, Solnit wrote an interesting piece about it that I rather liked. Talked about a baseball game that they used to have up in Marin that would be like all of the like pop artists versus all of the like Abex artists or whatever. <laughs> Pretty fucking cool. The monolith. The monolith. I mean, big news. Everybody loves the, the monolith. Biggest, the biggest news, I think, of 2020. Finally, I've, I've been waiting for you to say that. I mean, it's so refreshing to have something to look at that isn't <laughs> just like a, a, a rising number of some brain, <laughs> whether it be like deaths or unemployment numbers. Well, I'm glad we recorded this, you know, as close to the date of our posting it as, as we did, because had we recorded it days ago, I mean, the developments in this story, they just keep coming. Endless. Like, They've been stopped. endless. Oh, my God. I think this is going to carry us into the new year. <laughs> I fucking hope so. God, I wish you could pass me that joint through the screen right now. Hey, dude. Fucking hey, dude. I'm fucking aliens, dude. Come for me, dude. Oh, my God. No. Um, this podcast. I said I said you couldn't quieter. do any silly voices. I said only Melania, and you didn't even do your Melania voice. I, I did not do my Melania. <laughs> I wanted to do. I was gonna do this whole thing actually for the. We're gonna talk about John McCracken. There was this guy. I wanted to give him a Finn Jackson. We'll see if we get there. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. I mean, so there's so much to say. That was that was basically. That's basically the whole plot line of our next bit. If you build it, they will come. Um, <laughs> Which might be a problem, ecologically speaking. Well, well, yeah, it was a big problem that sort of led to its removal. I mean, there's it's such an endlessly fascinating ordeal. Um, the Let's piece back up. Was, Let's use that for the benefit of the listeners. Some people might not know. Yeah, part. true. It's um, unlikely, yeah. but there was a monolith that was discovered in the Moab protected BLM land in Utah. That. And it was first discovered by a pilot, Brett Hutchings, who flew over it and reported there was this 
unknown structure. And when interviewed by the New York Times, when asked what he thought it was, he said it was probably some new wave artist. Um, I don't know which which new wave artist, like Depeche Mode or New Order, he thinks cool. he thinks put that monolith there. You know, there was immediate references to 2001 Space Odyssey um, because of the uncanny resemblance that the monolith bears to the structure with the apes in the beginning. It was really funny about that film. I saw that at the Castro Theater the summer after I graduated college for the first time with like a bunch of friends. And we just like ate edibles and watched it, I think with like a live orchestra, or at least partially live maybe. And I, uh, when we were leaving, I'd lost my wallet. And I had to just like scour the entire theater to find my wallet so I could like pay for bus money to the bar we were going to and there was nothing that like made me feel like more of just like a dumb monkey than asking them to like turn the lights up in the theater so I could find my wallet. You're, like slapping at the at the screen like a Lacan yeah. cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> just like got too stoned and couldn't find it. Anybody who is anybody has had like a too fucked up experience with that film. I love 2001. I think it's fantastic. I also think it's like very much the terrain of like insufferable transhumanist nerds you know because that is ultimately the conclusion of the of the clark book it's like you know fusion technology there's a great story that john steffling one of my favorite writers writes about going and seeing it in like the 70s and taking acid for the first time in a very long time and there's only one other guy in the theater and he's and he turns to him and he sit he comes and he sits right down next to him and he said turns to him and he says you're on acid too, huh? <laughs> and then he just white knuckles it through the whole thing. He just found it the most terrifying experience. I'm going to add Richard Strauss's also speak, also spray Zarathustra over this part of the episode, by the way. I'm just gonna. Okay, great. I had an experience like that. I went to the De Young on acid. We just like went and sat in the James Terrell skyscape and these two people walked in and we had that moment. As soon as they walked in, we were like, oh no, you guys are also on drugs. <laughs> and so we just sat there in this like incredible, what, in, in truly what is what is a monolith, I would say. Um, James Terrell also affiliated with the Light and Space Movement, just like John McCracken. And these two small children walked in and by themselves. And I was like overwhelmed because I was like, oh my God, I'm the adult in this situation. And they started making fart noises because of the resonance and the structure. And these two other people- It was people, probably beautiful. They were so beautiful. And the two other people that were obviously tripping started like conducting the children with their hands, like trying to orchestrate their fart noises. And then one of their moms came in, and we were hot. We were just losing it. It was like the most—it was just this, this unparalleled level of joy. And then their mom came in, and they're like, "Oh, we gotta go because my phone is dead, and we have to meet Susan." And I felt like that six-year-old in that moment. I was like, "Dude, I don't give a shit about Susan." Fuck Susan. Fuck Susan. Just kidding. That's my mother. I love her mother. It has now been removed. Hold on, but backtracking. 
before, when the monolith still stood, um, you know, the sort of immediate reaction was it's illegal to install structures without any kind of authorization. These are federally managed lands, um, which is an interesting idea. You know, when we think of the idea of public art, public art is only allowed on privately owned land. Well, that brings us back, may I say, to Noguchi, who is kind of, been, has been accused of a bit of a plop art aesthetic, you know? Sort of that like property value increasing public sculpture that always exists in like these really lame like shopping districts and on the side of the road. I mean, I was just in the desert, so you just an abundance of that everywhere. Yeah. And immediately there was, there was, speculation around whether it could be credited to a American minimalist artist. There were, there is a strong history of, you know, artistic interventions, installation art, land art in the American Southwest. Um, Nancy Holt, Robert Smithson, Donald Judd, Michael Heiser, and Immediately, people start speculating. They conclude it's probably a John McCracken piece. John McCracken is a West Coast conceptualist, um, studied with Gordon Mata Clark. Uh, sorry, uh, not Gordon Mata Clark. Um, Gordon Onslow Ford, who was friends with Roberto Mata. Okay. And Roberto okay. Mata named his son after Gordon Onslow Ford, Gordon Mata Clark, known for cutting the house in half. And John McCracken didn't really rise to popularity until the 80s. He was really influenced by car culture, surfboard, surfboard culture, was a minimalist, um, and is you know, particularly well known for these sort of very, very clean structures made of highly polished surfaces, highly handled surfaces, um, you know, varnished fiberglass, um, highly polished aluminum. And he overwhelmingly works with rectangles. He has made work that's um, canonical and triangular, but if you go to any major institution, particularly in the West Coast, you'll likely see one of his planks, which are highly varnished uh, fiberglass planks, seamless, spotless, leaning against the wall. His car culture, I mean, they have that sort of chromium grill sort of look to them. They're so polished. They're so like sort of buffed and whacked. Yeah, buffed is, is, is the term. Um, the other thing to McCracken is the particularly, the, the particular aspect of minimalism, which is quite broad in America that he's most affiliated with, is the light and space movement. Previously mentioned in our psychedelic tangent version. And that sort of variety of minimalists work, are, are most interested in like, you know, working within the natural qualities of an environment. And so when the initial speculation arose around this piece being by John McCracken, um, his art friends, such as, <laughs> art friends, which was the term New York Times used. Really? Um, like, yeah, like Ed Ruscha, who I'm a big fan of, um, vehemently uh, denied it. And then his dealer, the esteemed David Zwerner, um, immediately, or not, first first denied it, and then quickly afterwards, we're like, no, that's definitely a John McCracken piece. 
And as soon as he said that, the next day, it was reported to have disappeared. A few thoughts on that. His son was quoted in the New York Times article that broke about David Zwerner claiming that it was definitely a John McCracken piece, that his father, this, you know, John McCracken's son claiming his father, John McCracken, once ambiguously spoke of putting art in hard to find environments to be found at a later time. And I don't know, people say lots of things. What's fascinating is that the piece was allegedly, you know, disappeared. Instagram, Reddit, and Twitter told us that the piece was removed in the middle of the night by a group of men who, you know, considered it to be trash and, you know, were really overwhelmed and protective of the environment within which it was situated um, because as soon as it was announced, people on Reddit figured out the coordinates and people began to flock to the site. It's not accessible by any roads or trails. You have to off-road to the location, you know, in, in effect, trampling over, um, you know, untouched landscapes and the natural habitats of the animals that live there. What's amazing is I didn't realize until I saw the documentation of this work being removed that it is hollow and it is made of three pieces of aluminum sheet metal that are riveted together. And I just knew as soon as I saw that, that this was not the work of an artist whatsoever, um, let alone an American minimalist artist. It's okay. So it doesn't bear any of the hallmarks of McCracken's style. David Swerner is doing the thing from the episode of The Simpsons where they find an angel and then it turns out to be like an advertisement for a mall. Like it's like very... <laughs> He's, he's doing yeah, why wouldn't, why wouldn't he claim it was a McCracken? Like, what a, what a wonderful way to increase, like, his return. It's great. It's great. And I agree with you that it is not the work of an artist. It is very clearly the work of extraterrestrial beings. Okay, so that's another, that's another theory for sure. My thought in the, it not being the work of an artist is that, um, it was uh, it was situated into the ground, um, and the rock, the red rock, had to be cut with a cement saw to situate it. And it was also not welded; it was riveted, hollow, flimsy, full of plywood, made of plywood, full of plywood, a plywood, a plywood interior. Um, they have in space, just saying. But. I think it was really like it's it's situationing like it's it's like it's positioning that I found really striking um because the light and space movement artists and I think minimalists overwhelmingly you know they didn't emphasize hardware in the way that like pop and post-pop artists did you know like if you look at like Carl Andre or Donald Judd like they're definitely using industrious materials and they're like re reappropriating them and like recontextualizing like the implications of like mass produced popular like hardware and, and uh, you know material substances but you know they're doing that with like the gesture of an artist and that's why when you see a John McCracken piece it looks sort of like if you ever if you go if you go to the Shani Foundation Marfa Texas and you see um, 100 Untitled Works and Mild Aluminum just like if you take the tour to the first piece you see there's like a hundred aluminum boxes that seem like they're just 
they, they just like melt into the landscape. You know, there's no, there, there's, there's no like obvious, um, like operative binding agent and there's no gaps. Everything is, you, you can't touch them. You can't, I mean, they're, they're so, they're flawless. Also the fact that it was cut into the earth and like put in there where like when you go to the Shawnee Foundation, I'm just using that because it's like a quintessential, like, you know, popular example of like installation art, you know, in a desert scape, you know, it's in West Texas. It, it becomes a part of the landscape. It's not positioned in contrast to the landscape. It's not an addendum to the landscape. It is the place, you know, it's an idea of, it is, it's, it's something that negotiates the, like the experience of, of space versus place. And what I really think is most likely is that it's, you know, it, it is probably like a sci-fi enthusiast playing some tricks, doing some shit, experimenting, having their moment. It looks, to me, it looks most like burner art, which makes sense <laughs> because, because burner art is created to be destroyed. So is this apparently. Oh man, I got so much to say. I mean, as far as the materials and sort of minimalism, you know, let's point towards Warhol again. We just talked about that. You're, you're letting the, the thing as a material speak for itself, which is kind of like a Marxist sort of thing. And then as far as blending into the landscape, you know, that's very beautiful. That's what, that's what uh, you know, whatever land art is supposed to do. Yeah. Absolutely, like sun tunnels. Sure, and it's absolutely incredible. And the most successful land art really does sort of like take you back a moment. You're like, oh, is this some sort of natural phenomena, <laughs> you know, that is just so perfect. And, and that's what makes it so beautiful. And this is a little more burnery. I mean, it's obviously like varnished and polished and cleaned. And, you know, it has that sort of, I mean, the mirror is such a salient symbol of our moment as a, as we were sending things back and forth to each other or looking at these like photographers or whatever that are claiming to have like insider information they're also like taking photos of them like standing on top of it and stuff like that like it's kind of like one of those it's like a selfie museum <laughs> which is unfortunate um i really love it i not as like a piece of art but you know and mccracken you know he'd like lean his which i think is pretty endearing as if it had just been left there yeah mccracken was quoted saying i see the plank as existing between two worlds the floor representing the physical world of standing objects trees cars buildings and human bodies and the wall representing the world of the imagination illusionist painting space and human mental space and so like ideologically like i do understand why people would think mccracken as opposed to other minimalists but the object is just <laughs> it's funny it's not even a monolith it's no it's not that's correct it's not one piece <laughs> it's like a little it's a little house of cards yeah it's 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 kind of shoddily made and and you know it's funny what you just said about you know mccracken's quote that brings me to both noguchi all the way on the floor and then ava hessa all the way on the wall. It's <laughs> true. Somewhere between the two, it actually makes me like him a little bit more. He yeah. was a big like sci-fi dude. I mean, he definitely he was. He was like an ancient aliens kind of guy. He thought yeah. that, you know, and he lived in the Southwest. He was deeply inspired by the, you know, the environs of the Southwest. 
And that's a real thing. I was just out there. I was just in this sort of like Salton Sea Joshua Tree area and I went to the Noah Purifoy Museum. It feels like a sort of, um, the same as McCracken said something about like, oh, you know, after we're all gone, I want aliens to come and they're gonna find these things and they're gonna be like, what? And, you know, a lot of that desert stuff is the same way, but it's sort of like them making the case that human beings, despite the fact that we destroyed ourselves and each other, did have a sense of humor. <laughs> and um, something very just sweet about that. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, it's, I'm, I think I'm, I'm most interested in the claims. I mean, yeah, I mean, to, to finish off the story, as you know, it was, there was then, it was then claimed that it moved to Romania when the piece in Romania was clearly another object entirely. And then today it was reported that- It was like, everyone, all, every article I read about the Romanian one points out that it was quote, shoddily made, just mm -hmm. to take a jab at Eastern Europeans. <laughs> I know, I know. Unfortunate, really. I know Melania is just like muttering under her breath. I mean, I guess Slovenia is not like really that Eastern. Honestly, I think Melania might be behind it. Like I said, she's got a memoir coming out. Yeah, Melania is Melania is the is is behind like all the conspiracies. Like she killed okay. the Minks, she erected the monolith. It's all it's all to decorate the fucking White House for Christmas. I swear. It. <laughs> Oh my Dude, God, the, the White House, the White House Christmas is, is just going to be a bunch of like triangular monoliths made out of like aluminum sheet metal decorated with dead minks. That would suit their aesthetic. The the monolith in Romania is funny. It came on the night of Saint Andrew's Day, which um, has like a sort of supernatural association in Romania, and it was done in a in a in a Dacian uh, like archaeological site. So it had a sort of like cultural significance with the placement. And then somebody wrote, um, I'm, I'm quoting, this is from Romania Insider, quote, the monolith found near the archaeological site of an old Dacian stronghold appeared on the night of St. Andrew when a reportedly a bright light surrounded the object. Locals thought the light came from a car, but the light pointed towards the sky. That's all I got. <laughs> That's all Same. I got. That's all I've got. I love um, it. And then there was one in a Tescadero, California. Yeah, where you just were. Where I slept in my car for like three hours. I saw a lot of mysterious things that night. None of them were aesthetic or otherworldly. None of them were St. Andrew. <laughs> what, I, I, what, what I'm interested in is this negotiation of the public and the private. You know, officials, park rangers not wanting to disclose the location fearing that people would go, but at the same time, referring to the lands as like being like their public artwork in that environment is forbidden because the land is public. I mean, this makes me think of like, like the reason Black Rock Desert is, it is a place, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you've ever been to Burning Man, I haven't, and uh, I won't go, but, um, I'd go. The, like, the, like, it's a know. place that is known as such because it's where uh, it was like the first part of that like Western desert where uh, pioneers like entered this realm. So basically because white people walked on it, it made it a place. Well, that's the land of the Donner Party. Those, are the, those were the air, lands traversed by the, you know. Mm -hmm. The people that then became the gold miners, yeah. when, when when Manifest Destiny 
made its way to the sea and in a great act of reflex bound itself upwards into the heavens with aerospace and downwards with fracking gold mining and the destruction of, you know it's mining it's lithium it's tesla reality mining teslas mining um, teslas in the black rock desert it's my public art piece um but I'm super interested in like the designation of this object as trash, like in the Instagram post I read, which was a documentation of these men removing the piece. They said, this is why you don't leave trash in the desert, leave no trace. And which is the resounding ethos of Burning Man, leave no trace. And, and also the ethos of Burning Man is the ethos of startups. It's just like you get to build this thing and like just see what happens. And if it just, you know, there's a and whole, then you get to burn it down. No harm, like no harm, no foul. It's not a sand mandala. It actually like money isn't real. There's no consequences. Yeah, yeah it does very much so mirror that kind of culture, which is like so the commodification so of impermanence in like an aesthetic sense. Yeah, the commodification of impermanence. I like that. I mean, it's interesting though because a lot the the common critique of public artwork is that it has nothing to do with where it is. Um, I mean, that's something like why, like why urban light is so widely loved because those, those, uh, those lamps, those street lamps were collected from like the streets of Los Angeles over the course of decades. And so there is this sense of like, like, you know, archival choline of placefulness, you know, it's interesting to think about like the Watts Towers, like you mentioned Noah Purfoy, who's, you know, museum of like outdoor museum is in Joshua Tree. Noah Purfoy worked for the California Arts Council for a long time, was really instrumental in the creation of the Watts Towers Art Center, which is sort of like operative body that preserves the Watts Towers built by um, Sabata, known as Simon Robita. And I don't think a lot of people realize that Simon Robita is an Italian immigrant. He's not, Hispan he's not Hispanic or black, which is, you know, which are the demographics, like Watts neighborhood, at least in the contemporary, most like affiliated with, those are literally made of trash. And they are like the most iconic element of South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, and I got, I got, I got two things to say about that. First of all, Melania really missed the boat because this would look great in the Oval Office, the Watts Towers. <laughs> But then second of all, I mean, that's something, you know, about just like black arts in general, right? Like, you know, Purifoy or uh, Betty Saar, like any of these people, it's about assemblage. It's about the detritus of, you know, society and sort of like in, in their senses, often it's cultural and, and kind of like reassembling those things, whether it's like symbology and like Betty Saar or Carrie Mae Weems or something like that or the literal like tires and televisions that just float into the desert and the yeah like like noah purfoy's work like what is it uh 66 what is that work called it's like seminal work 66 uh, neon sign what is it uh 66 signs and neon 66 66 signs and neon is like literally constructed of refuse and detritus left over from the Watts riots. Which is incredible. And that's the thing about, so I went there recently and there's, you know, like I was joking, you know, there's a joke when you occupy the high desert of like people put cactuses in 
toilets, isn't that crass? You know, this kind of like dumb desert aesthetic. But what Noah Purfoy is doing is actually very interesting. It's, it's decidedly Dada, but it's also decidedly political. And it's political in a way that is beautiful. I mean, to look at these pieces, they are abstract, they're lyrical, they're sensual they're telling and they do the exact opposite of the sort of political art that we were critiquing earlier. Yeah. I mean, occupying that world. Yeah. I mean, but then like, there they are like situated in the desert, you know, yeah, in a place that has nothing to do with what they are. Whereas the Watts towers are, you know, these erections of trash built by an Italian immigrant in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood that, somehow embody the place. Yeah, and something I will say also, just as a final note on Nora Purfoy and that outdoor museum was that when I was there, I went into this, you know, sort of enclosed space that was built. And I mean, some of it was incredible. And we were talking about like the colonnade last time and there was really fun sort of like, this is like a weird postmodern comment on it or whatever. But I walked into the space and this little boy walked in behind me and he just said, Wow, awesome. And it didn't feel to me like public art in the way that something like Urban Light is. It didn't feel to me public art in the way that like Anish Kapoor's like Big Bean is. It's not this like, it's not a monument to capitalism. It's a monument to something else. It's a monument to like humanity as just like a sort of dignified entity, but and not to like the polished sheen of something that stands as a monument to something else. I don't know. But I found it really endearing in this way. It wasn't like riding the the the, the elevators at a at a Marriott designed by like John Portman, you know, like the Embarcadero Marriott, where you're like, whoa, it's this glass. You know, it wasn't that sort of wow coming from the kid. It was like a wow of like, this is just fucking weird. And I, yeah. I want to make this myself out of shoe boxes and old like circuit boards. Yeah. I really dug that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the experience that I uh, most want to come about and bring about in the world. Pretty it's a pretty good thing to want to do. (laughs) You say that with a joint in your hand. I think that marks the uh, conclusion of uh, Dead Air, episode two. Yeah, baby, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> right.